0: Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Materials Security, a company that can take the control-free zone that is your corporate cloud email inboxes and actually wrap some sensible controls around them. Uh, in essence, what they do is introduce uh, an enterprise security feature set to cloud email like 0365 and Google Workspace. So you can do things like redact uh, PII from your corporate email inboxes, right? Just sensible stuff like that. Uh, and in this week's sponsor interview, Material co-founder Ryan Noon and Snowflakes head of cybersecurity strategy, Omar Singer... Join me to talk about how centralizing data like logs and things like that on platforms like Snowflake means there's a solid chance we're going to see the emergence of a thriving application uh, application market for data analytics in security. They make a pretty compelling argument, i got to say. Uh, Material is supporting Snowflake already, and uh, Snowflake's an investor in, in Material, uh, and that's a great chat. It's a fun chat, and it's coming up after the news with Adam Boileau, which starts now. And Adam, we're going to start off by talking... About the Royal Mail ransomware attack in the UK. Uh, it turns out, uh, no surprise really, but yes, it is ransomware and it's Lockbit. Here's how we reported that story in Risky Business News on Monday.
1: The cyber incident that brought down international shipping for the Royal Mail Postal Service in the UK has been linked to the Lockbit ransomware group according to a ransom note seen by BBC reporters. Lockbit denied involvement in the intrusion for several days before admitting one of its affiliates was behind the attack via a post made on an underground Russian cybercrime forum. The group is no doubt anxious about linking its name to the attack, which is very likely to draw serious attention from the British government and its agencies. American and Australian authorities responded aggressively after similarly disruptive ransomware attacks against organisations like Colonial Pipeline and Medibank. The Royal Mail's website still indicates customers are currently unable to send mail overseas.
0: So yeah, this was interesting, right? Because initially Lockbit were like, oh, we had nothing to do with this uh, whatsoever, but it was an affiliate of theirs. And then all of a sudden they're posting stuff on forums saying, yes, it was one of our affiliates, but they, they're they very good about unlocking stuff once they get paid, which uh, don't know that you're making it better for yourselves there, guys.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Royal Mail as a target does seem, I mean, they, maybe it's not colonial pipeline in the sense that people are, you know, lining up for gas around the, around the streets, but, you know, the postal system, and particularly, you know, sending uh, international posts, which apparently you still can't do via the Royal Mail at the moment because of this uh, ransomware, like, you know around holiday times, so that's pretty, pretty personal. and also, like this is an organisation. I mean the Royal Mail turns out has been privatised for some time. I yeah, d- I, didn't you, know. you
0: told me this this morning and then I looked into it, and yeah, they' they' are listed, they're listed on the London London Stock Exchange. But yes, I think we can both agree that. That mail
2: is a critical government yes, function traditionally. you know, yeah. an entity that goes back to the, what, like 15th century or something. <laughs> so yeah. you can kind of see why the British government might take this a little personally, and I'm sure there's plenty of hounds at GCHQ that are just, you know, looking for any opportunity to go, you know, bust some heads uh, and you know this feels like the sort of thing that you know it's just not tolerable although we've said that about lots of things in the past and here we are yeah Um, but I think
0: I think it's been lost on quite a few people that you know you go after the mail service and look as best I can tell I I did some googling this morning and I found a BBC story profiling a small to medium business that was really struggling uh, because of this because they were unable to ship uh, uh, parcels and packages internationally, so like it is, it is a real shit show, and it doesn't look like it's resolved now. And the longer this drags out, the worse it's going to be. And the UK has just been p- trouble-plagued for a while now, right? So it's sort of like adding insult to to injury. But yes, I certainly feel like I, at this point, I would be surprised if there's not a group of people in GCHQ popping shells over this right now. and and, and I. I kind of feel like the ransomware as a service groups like Lockbit don't quite understand that government policymakers don't care if it's them or their affiliates who are actually doing the ransomware. The point is policymakers are going to view this as an ecosystem that needs to be disrupted, right? So you can't just say, oh, well, it was an affiliate, not our fault. That, that, that doesn't work.
2: Yeah, it, exactly. And I mean, you know, you can't have it both ways if you're trying to push your brand. Like if brand recognition to bring in more affiliates and more business is part of your strategy, which with Lockbit it kind of is. And we'll touch on that in a second. Um, then, yeah, you can't just say, oh, well, somebody else did it then when, you know, your brand is right there on the ransom note. That's kind of like no one cares about that. Uh,
0: Yeah, it's like uh, last week we briefly mentioned that sick kids, you know, a Canadian hospital, I believe it was in Canada anyway, from memory, that's where it was, uh, was was ransomware. uh, And it turns out, like, as someone pointed out to me on one of the socials, um, you know, the, the crew provided the decryption key for free because it was a hospital for sick children. That doesn't matter. The point is, they've still disrupted the operations of a children's hospital. It doesn't matter that they say, oh, our bad, here's a key. You know, that is not really going to factor into policy decisions on this stuff as much as the <laughs> no. ransomware as a service crews would like to think it will.
2: Yeah, I mean, in Lockbit in particular, they've said, you know, things about not attacking hospitals or not attacking, you know, um, healthcare organisations. And yet, you know, on their leak site, there are examples of healthcare organisations. So, you know, you can protest. Like, you also have to follow through. And as you say, in the end, you're still doing a crime and no one is going to, you know, particularly nitpick uh, about coming after you as a result of you know oh an affiliate did it right
0: yeah yeah exactly so um, now it's, it's it's a hell of a week for for Lockbit news stories because <laughs> we've got this work out of analyst one that's been written up in a few places but it's extraordinary one of their researchers uh, John Dimaggio went kind of undercover in the forums and got to hang out with them for like a year. And has just written up the most extraordinary accounts of his time undercover in Lockbit. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, it's a hell of a read. It's also quite a long read. Um, and yeah, I mean, spending that much time undercover in the forums, interacting with the people, getting to know some of the people involved, getting to know some of the dramas, and like that's the thing that I really took out of this piece more than anything uh, was how much this just feels like nineties IRC. You know, black hat scene hmm. drama, you know, yeah. even though it's criminals, you know, and, and you know, doing real crimes, not stuff, just
0: doing real crimes, not just silly, silly, like what we used to call black hat in the 90s was mostly silly crimes.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like it's a little, a little defacement, some stealing on people's bugs, some shell on a few things, but not, you know.
0: Yeah. Like even not. Kevin Mitnick, like stealing the source code for some mobile OS so that he could mess around with it. You know what it like? like yeah. It's just so funny that that's what we
2: used to think was like seriously criminal behavior. right. <laughs> 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 uh but no so it's it's a really great write up of you know just you know you know a day in the life except in this case a year in the life i suppose uh, of what it's like being a russian you know cyber crim or a ukrainian cyber crim uh, and all of the drama and the back and forth and you know a bunch of pretty well footnoted pretty well documented um, you know explanation of some of the lineage of the bits of software and the groups involved and some of the crossover of the people involved. And I think you know if you're in the attribution game, uh, this is a great read because there's just a bunch of um, you know of very useful source material and also just you know kind of insights that you can only get having spent that much time in those scenes and not all of us have the time or the language skills right to be able to go and do that.
0: Well, I mean, in this case, it was just, I think uh, the researcher, John, was pretending to be a German so that they could resort to speaking English with the ransomware. Like, it's just full of little details like that, like, and and made sure to type in broken English so, so as not to give the game away. But I think this also shows that these groups are perhaps a little bit easier to infiltrate than some people might think, despite the fact that they're really, really paranoid, you know?
2: Yes, yeah, and certainly the level of paranoia and and infighting you know, is a thing that comes up a bunch of times, especially when discussing the relationships between some of the groups. And you know, at one point there was a sort of a, a cartel, I suppose, where they were going to work together to make the you know the whole industry for them better. And you know, kinda understanding the reality of that on the ground is a thing that you get from from this piece.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I sort of feel like this Royal Mail attack is is a little bit like the Colonial Pipeline thing, is a little bit like the MediBank thing. It's like just that one that's a bridge too far. So, I as I say, I would be surprised if there are not operations currently occurring to disrupt this group. Whether or not we see any evidence of this over the next, you know, little while, who, who can say? But you know, this ransomware task force thing that's been spun up, like a global ransomware task force, at um kind of high levels of, of government, that thing's actually up and running now. And I sort of get the impression that we're going to see real response this year. And I think this is just going to help, right, for the people who want to see a real response.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so too. And, you know, so much great work is done in the private sector that then could feed into, you know, sort of more government efforts, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah, I, you know, I think we would very much like to see, you know, given that, you know, Conti kind of fell apart following uh, you know the invasion of ukraine um and we've seen you know our evil and a bunch of the other you know big players also get a little bit disrupted you know well we haven't like- heard much
0: from rival since many yes. banks, right like we haven't it's still and and i know the what do they say the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence yeah um <laughs> but it's been a little while you know
2: yeah i mean you know they could be on you know winter break but yeah, we don't. We don't really know what we'll we, we don't and see, know. But
0: we don't no. know. But I, I, I'm just curious to see if Lockbit's about to have a bad year, right? Because then we know.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I feel
0: like if Lockbit just starts turning into a clown show, like,
2: <laughs>
0: I'm calling shenanigans. You know.
2: Yeah. No. You know, they've certainly drawn a whole bunch of attention to themselves. Like this is one of the penalties of kind of winning in that marketplace. Yeah. Is that you do start to pull in all the affiliates, including the ones that are perhaps a little more, you know, your uh,
0: target. Let's let's come up with a term for that. Let's call it Pablo Escobar syndrome. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Exactly.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, good good hunting. To, it's to the all GCHQ. great until you
0: get gunned down on a rooftop, yeah. uh, running away <laughs> from the DEA, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Now, look, another another big thing that happened, which is, I mean, you know, we actually had a had a discussion about this yesterday about whether or not this is uh, this is in our beat or not. But there was, of course, the the big outage at the FAA, the NOTAM notice to airman uh, system, which distributes uh, air notices to pilots. Um, the system fell over mysteriously, and a lot of flights in the United States uh, were grounded. It was reported, yeah, like I, I, most of them, right, got grounded uh, uh, for a short period of time, caused a lot of chaos. Now, I think I jumped into Slack and I said, this probably isn't ransomware, but imagine if it is. And of course it wasn't. And then I, re- I posted another comment and said, but it is Patch Tuesday. <laughs> 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 um, it turns out like it's a little bit vague as to what's happened, but- I think I saw a statement along the lines of there was some maintenance happening and someone deleted the wrong file and it fell over and they had to rebuild it. I've also seen other reporting where they're like actually building a better, new and improved system. They're just not ready to cut to it yet. But look, it just looks like old creaky system fell over, Um, but now it's attracting – this incident is attracting political attention where you've got people in Congress now wanting to launch an inquiry into the sort of security and resiliency of of this system, which – I mean, it seems like a pretty good idea, let's be honest, because it's demonstrated that it's actually a a single point of failure for air travel in the United States.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly availability is a super important property of a resilient system, you know, not just the other parts of the, you know, the CIA triad. So it makes sense that we would look at this through a security lens, uh, even if this, you know, in this exact case, it was not on purpose or, you know, malicious or whatever, which yeah, I know. You know, with um, Win Seven coming to EOL, and then a Patch Tuesday, and you know, there yeah, was just yeah, a bunch yeah, yeah. That's you know, the <laughs>
0: thing. I, I had f- you know the Fry GIF of him narrowing yeah, his yes. eyes, yeah, yeah, right? like yeah, yeah definitely exactly. those vibes,
2: yeah, yeah. And you certainly, you, know, you look at a thing blowing up like that. That doesn't blow up particularly often, yeah. and you go, hmm, what? You what know. happened? To someone touched it. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and you know the idea that it was new enough to run on Windows Seven, you know, perhaps I'm you know, some, probably somewhere a listener is laughing their ass off because it runs on you know some HPUX system from the dawn of time, or a, you know old <laughs> IBM mainframe, or who knows what? Maybe they load it with punch cards. I don't know. Um, yeah. So comedy, either way. But yes, uh, it c- got a whole bunch of attention. Um, and
0: well, rightly so, man. and well, you rightly can't so, right, get yes. on your aeroplane because of some ancient box falling over because someone fat fingered it like (laughs) you know that's 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 a big deal
2: yeah and certainly like if you were looking for a way to apply leverage right something that you could cause big disruption to well you know knowing a system like that is that fragile doesn't have working backups doesn't have a you know a failover plan you know that's still useful information to an adversary
0: yeah yeah and look staying with a similar theme john grieg over at the record has this report we reported on this last week as well in risky business news and look There's a lot that we cover in Risky Business News that we don't cover in this podcast. So, um, you know, you will be missing out on some important stuff if you're not subscribed. Uh, But there's this company in Oslo named DNV, which operates a uh, a, like a ship manager software. It's like logistics software. It runs on ships. They had a ransomware incident. It affected something like a thousand vessels, which could still run this software in like an offline mode. Uh, But I think it's installed on something like 7,000 vessels. So, you know, the attacker didn't affect all of the the infrastructure here, but this is another example of what is no doubt a decrepit and aging logistics system that is quite important just getting affected by something that probably shouldn't affect
2: it. Yeah, I mean, there's so many bits of the modern world that you just don't even think about. Just bits of plumbing companies like this, you know, bits of infrastructure that, you know, probably had never really faced particularly hostile environments perhaps were built before the concept of computer hacking was a thing and you know yet are still critical parts of of you know everyday life and logistics and and everything else so you know it's always interesting when these points you know these points of weakness crop up because there's just so many more of them to be discovered and we're going to be doing this for a long time I'm sure Um, but you know we saw how bad logistics got during the pandemic and you know the impact of things like WannaCry and so on Um, you know these systems are super important and yeah, I I'm gonna, I feel bad for the people having to, you know, uh, head back into the office and uh, and try and deal with this. You know, maybe when they're off trying to, you know, enjoy some of their break or whatever. Yeah, yeah, tough yeah. times.
0: Hard times and look. Speaking of hard times, CircleCI, CI and to its credit, CircleCI CI has released a post mortem uh, on the breach that affected it. Which you know, we we spoke about this last week, where they're like, you know, everything's fine now, but you probably want to rotate all your key material. <laughs> and we thought, you know, they were kind of obfuscating a bit, but they've they've come clean. They've released a reasonably detailed blog post about exactly what's happened here. And I look, I find this one really really interesting because the way that this happened was malware on a laptop, right? Now, you're going to presume that an organization like Circle CI, it's going to be very zero-trusty, very modern, right? But ultimately, Adam, and again, we had this conversation yesterday in preparation for today, even if you're running like terrific uh, zero-trust architecture, if you get malware on one of your endpoints, you are f***ed.
2: Yes. I mean, you've got to be able to trust the keyboard that you type on and the screen that you're looking at. And if someone else does, in this case, malware... Uh, then, yeah, all the zero trust controls in the world aren't going to help you if the person whose laptop, you know, or device or endpoint has been compromised is legitimately logging into super important things.
0: Yeah, well, uh, then, there's a couple, a couple other interesting things here that I didn't mention, right? One is that they said the malware got onto the onto the engineer's laptop and the antivirus didn't detect it, which just suggests to me that they're not running EDR, which mm-hmm. I'm guessing they're gonna probably start doing that soon. And the second thing is they were able to steal. Uh, session information which allowed them to bypass MFA. And we've previously discussed on the show, like recently, about how that's not a particularly easy thing to do, right? So you can imagine if they were using EDR god they would have made a lot of noise trying to grab that session information right
2: yeah i mean certainly going and stealing the, the session tokens out of the browser you know that's a you know that gets you past all of those auth layers and is the thing that you're going to do as a modern attacker but, but it yeah, is but harder if, than it if, used to be well I mean, and it makes a lot
0: of noise on the endpoint right so if you're running edr it's going to spot that sort of thing
2: yes yeah yeah you know, exactly if you're running good a good edr and you're doing it you know there's so many ways to <laughs> Do it. I guess You
0: really just don't want to say that EDR would have helped here, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know.
2: Uh, but look, but I mean I,
0: I guess I guess what I'm getting at, right, is that is that you can have great MFA. But if your endpoints are, are, are popped, your endpoints are popped, right? You really, that is an area that you just can't neglect. Even if you're running MFA, you know, even if you're running modern controls on the server side, like you still really need to pay attention to what's happening on your endpoints. I mean, everybody knows I'm a huge fan of allow listing uh, as an approach to endpoint security. Um, but at the very least, you know, if you're going to have a, have a laptop like this that's handling such critical access, for God's sakes, put some EDR on it and maybe pay attention to what it's telling you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would be interested to know whether this is a BYOD environment or whether it's as well managed yeah. because yeah. to me, BYOD has just never made sense because there's just no way to make it okay in my mind. And, mm. you know, you can layer a bunch of controls in, but, you know, this is a great example. If this was a BYOD environment... And, you know, I, don't I mean, know this that, just but.
0: this just absolutely smells like you know someone working from home on their own laptop, right?
2: Yeah, that, that is, and zero trust just can't fix that mm. uh, much as it wants to be able to. It just you know, there's only so much remote att- attestation you can bolt in, and how much you rely and blah, blah blah blah. In the end, if you're handling sensitive data, and in this this is just such a great example of post intrusion, you know, so they stole some you know session tokens, they're able to log into an admin panel from their they were able to generate new access tokens for access to production equipment. Yeah. So they were in the system that could generate new API keys or tokens or or whatever else.
0: They stole a stack of encrypted data, but they also stole the key material that they could use to decrypt it. And like, they (laughs) got them pretty good, right?
2: Yes. And like, whoever did this, like you read the... They knew what they were doing. Yeah, that
0: that shone through to me as well. They did
2: seem very competent, um, which is interesting. Yes, Um, yes,
0: yes. No, I had exactly the same thought, which is like, they did a bunch of stuff that's not really easy right to to do this and it all seemed to go without a hitch um you do wonder you do kind of wonder who was behind it and what the objective was
2: yes and they they seem to do it pretty quickly and then circle ci said in the blog post that uh, fewer than 5 customers have informed them of unauthorized access as a result
0: yeah and they were alerted to this by a customer who noticed um strange uh, activity on their on their circle ci github integration
2: yeah. So that that's interesting because yeah, whoever got in here did a good job and only hit a few customers.
0: Yeah, but I mean like a lot of these other approaches, right, when we when we're talking zero trust. Companies like Okta are getting better at doing things like impossible login detection, you know, when mm. you're trying to log yeah. in from Sydney and Moscow at the same time. But like if someone's up on your endpoint, again that doesn't matter because they could no. just be that endpoint.
2: Yeah, and and you would tunnel through the endpoint because yes. that otherwise you're going to get snapped and we kind of Expect and assume that as attackers. I mean, yeah. you know, and ideally through the browser, right? Not just network pivoting through the box, like get up in the browser and use that to get to where you need to go so that you are same cookies, same user agent, and same everything, you know, for this exact reason.
0: I mean, one thing, that, one thing that kind of strikes me about this, right, is the parallel between this and going back 20 years to the NT4 days, right? Landing on a box in a network dumping the creds, and off you go, right? Like, even though we've got all this new MFA stuff and everything's TLS and it's all wonderful, all singing, all dancing modern infrastructure, it's essentially the same thing, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's because the browser is now the kernel. The browser is your operating system and if you can get into the ring zero, in this case, the browser, you've got access to all of the key material, the session tokens, you're in the right place to avoid anomaly detection. Yep. And, and off you go right I mean that's the the browser is the new kernel which is what always makes me a bit weird when people are like oh I run plugins in my browser because like that's like running kernel modules or you know plug, kernel plugins or you know yeah. whatever, whatever you got you gotta practice extensions. safe
0: safe hacks as they yes.
2: say <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> treat be... your browser like the security boundary that it is
0: yeah <laughs> so uh, we got a story here from cyberscoop I just thought this was interesting uh, because it's something that we've been talking about. Uh, This is Elias Grohl for CyberScoop, has written up a report on some research done by the Stanford Internet Observatory in conjunction with OpenAI, talking about the potential for, uh, you know, disinfo abuse of tools like GPT-3, right? And this is stuff that we mentioned last week, which is there's just, we're just going to see an incredible volume of content generated by large language models being published to the internet, knowing what's real and what's not is going to be hard and will it tr- start training itself on itself and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and onwards and onwards. So it looks like now we're actually starting to see already some, some research coming out saying, hey, this, this looks like it could be a problem.
2: Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's one of these situations where we're just not really going to know until it happens, you know, what it's going to look like, how bad it's going to be, whether there's any plausible defensive approaches. And I guess, you know, OpenAI themselves are obviously aware of the the potential for abuse. You know, we've seen other abuses of other AI systems, you know, like that Microsoft chatbot on Twitter. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, we're just going to have to do the research, and and because these are not going to go away. It's you know a lot of academic work has gone to this. There's a lot of open literature and tools, and and you know, people are going to use these tools. And you know, we can't stop it. We're just going to have to ride it through and see what options we've got, you yeah, know, for dealing with the fallout um, because it's not going back in the box. So yeah, I mean, good that OpenAI are involved in this process as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I, um, I
0: I could certainly see a browser plugin coming that alerts you when the text you're looking at is GPT three generated, because there are already um, pretty reliable ways to de- detect it. I think some student just released a website, uh, you know, weeks ago now, but um, where you could just paste some text in and it would tell you if GPT three had generated it. But knowing what's real and what's not, and it's going to be, it's going to be yeah. hard. Although, although. Don't ask Nick Cave that. So the Australian, uh, Australian <laughs> songwriter who's, uh, I believe, internationally quite, uh, quite well-known, Nick Cave. Uh, Certainly so. by goths. Yes, people kept sending him songs written in his style, you know, generated by GPT-3. And he actually did a pretty interesting blog post about this uh, that I just wanted to include in this week's show notes. I mean, the TLDR is him talking about how art is suffering and, you know, code doesn't suffer and whatever. It's, you know, it's pretty interesting artist's perspective on ChatGPT, but I just want to quote one paragraph here because it's very funny. Uh, so he's included the text of the of the generated song and he says, uh, I understand that ChatGPT is in its infancy, infancy Uh, But perhaps that is the emerging horror of AI, that it will forever be in its infancy, as it will always have further to go, and the direction is always forward, always faster. It can never be rolled back or slowed down as it moves us towards a utopian future, maybe, or our total destruction. Who could possibly say which? Judging by this song, in the style of Nick Cave, though, it doesn't look good. The apocalypse is well on its way. This song sucks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I liked it. I very much enjoyed that as well. So yes, worth a worth a read, <laughs> especially if you're a Nick Cave fan.
0: Now, uh, on the show, I've talked about how I think if one of the tech majors gets behind Mastodon, uh, that, you know, it could really accelerate its adoption. And as one, one of my followers on Mastodon pointed out to me, I must have been holding a, a monkey paw when I said this, because the tech giant that appears to be backing Mastodon is, drumroll please, Cloudflare.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, they have released on GitHub, um, their implementation of a Mastodon server called Wildebeest, which runs entirely on their like Lambda-ish, plat- like serverless platform. Yep. Um, where, yeah, you could just run like pay Cloudflare to run a Mastodon instance for you in Cloudflare's infrastructure I mean, it probably works pretty well.
0: <laughs> well, and it's going to get attention. It's going to get updates. It's it's going to be competently done, and will will really help uh, on this. What what really could turn into a journey of social media services like Mastodon becoming more like email? No one company owns email, right? Like, there's some very big email providers, but no one really owns it. And I think Mastodon's got got similar promise and you know they've got other uh social media applications that are equivalent to instagram and, and whatever uh you know the fediverse as they all talk about it my concern here is though because that it because it's cloudflare you know what happens when there's some uh you know instance that they're hosting which is wall-to-wall white supremacist nazi maniacs and it's on cloudflare and they're just gonna let it run because that's what cloudflare typically does right
2: yeah, yeah, you're right. Obviously, Cloudflare has presented a bunch of problems in the past for those of us that would prefer the internet to be a different way. And you know, social um, you know, a social network that's running entirely in Cloudflare's infrastructure like that. Yeah, there's just so many things that could well go wrong. Um, but I don't know. I mean, is it worse than Elon Twitter? That's a good question.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm going to say probably, right? But I yeah, think I um, think. I, I, it's hard, right? Because, you know, with Mastodon, it sort of relies on people blocking the problematic instances. You know, you trust the admin of your server to make good decisions about which things not to federate. But then, you know, will you see like a 8chan style Mastodon instance on running on Cloudflare and what then, right? Yeah. Like how vile do they need to be? How many mass murder videos do they need to post? How much advocacy for racial violence do they need to post before Cloudflare will pull it down? And there seems to be no upper limit.
2: I mean, I'm afraid you're right, yes. Um, and I don't know, it's going to be a ride, but <laughs> that's just true of so much of uh, the last few years. We are in the middle of a, an exciting ride and like, I don't know where this goes for us. <laughs> nope.
0: Uh We got some law enforcement drama in the US, Adam. Uh, Can open, worms everywhere. <laughs> yes. Walk us through these.
2: Uh, So we've seen reports of, I guess, a data breach at a company that makes software for police. So it's an app called Sweep Wizard, which police can use to kind of collect evidence and and manage, like, raids on people and all sorts of things like that, coordinate. Um, and Yes, like multiple
0: multiple agency coordination around stuff like raids and investigations.
2: Yes, and so this application, uh, apparently you could just, like, I guess, direct object reference from the API that backed their mobile applications, the data that was stored within it. And they got tipped, the Los Angeles police department got tipped off by somebody that you could do this, that you could just pull data about raids or whatever else, um, and you know, information about who was being targeted, uh, straight out of this app, which yeah. That's not great, right? Obviously, there's lots of sensitive information in there. Obviously, if you're a criminal syndicate, it would be nice to know when the police are going to go raid your meth lab or whatever else. Uh, So, like, just such a mess. And you would kind of hope that a company that was handling data that sensitive, you know, would have done basic mobile app, you know, API security reviews or taken basic precautions like, I don't know, requiring authentication. Uh, But no, not so much. The company who made this product is called. Odin Intelligence? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then, like, a couple of days after this news dropped, uh, they also got the, their front-end website defaced. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's real having a, a great time.
0: Having a great time. Yes. Uh, that
2: uh, the The defacement um, also said that they, whoever had done it, had stolen a whole bunch of data and handed it off to DDoS Secrets uh, and... They posted some hashes of the archives uh, on the defaced website and uh, Emma Best from DDoS Secrets confirms that they have received files with the same hashes. So, yeah, the can is very, very much open and the worms are, at the very least, on DDoS Secrets.
0: Yes, they're on their way to being everywhere, (laughs) uh, I would imagine. Now, this next story, right, Paul Nakasone, the NSA director, has come out and made a bunch of comments, you know, saying that – that their foreign surveillance program helped fend off cyber attacks. And uh, Dina temple Rustin has this one for the record. I included this in the news run sheet. And Adam, why don't you tell me what you what the comment was that you put on this item when I included it in our run sheet?
2: Yeah, so I said, we probably don't need to cover this because we covered this last week, where Paul McSerny went and, and gave a talk and said nothing. And we said on the show that he had said pretty much nothing. And this is another speech in which... You know, he kind of pretty much says nothing, uh, and we're just going to say the same thing as we said last week. And what was my response? He's like, that's why it's
0: funny. That's why it's funny. (laughs) Because Paul Neckasoni has done his trick, which is to come out and say, say, we did a thing, can't really tell you what it was, uh, but it was great, man. I'm telling you, we (laughs) saved your bacon, right? And look, I understand that transparency in an organization like NSA, it's difficult. Okay, yes. it is gonna be hard to be able to go out and and give away anything interesting. But you know, as a result, and, and, and again, it's not his fault. But as a result, you've got the director of an intelligence agency like this coming out and saying, "We did a thing, and it was so good," and then not telling you what the thing was, and everyone's <laughs> like, "Yay!" You know, it's yeah. just what a, what a world, huh?
2: Yeah, this was to the uh, U.S. Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, mm-hmm. explaining you're talking about 702 authorizations and that kind of thing, and how uh, irreplaceable they. Uh, well, I think were. they're coming
0: up for renewal, aren't they? Right? Yeah. So. <laughs> (laughs) has to go out and say oh it's absolutely essential like you know Darth Vader would be president if it weren't for us right now like a Russian Darth Vader and we stopped (laughs) Russian Darth Vader using these 702 uh, authorities that absolutely need to be renewed
2: (laughs) and obviously he has a degree of self-awareness about the situation because he said in the speech uh, quote how do we demonstrate to the public the fact that the dog didn't bark in the night yes how indeed, how <laughs> indeed?
0: I mean, that's what you know that's why you've got a lot of these congressional um uh, committees and stuff that where they can actually have classified conversations yes. for that reason. <laughs> but, you know, it's, you get the impression it's going to be at, at the very least an entertaining couple of years in US politics between, <laughs> you know, possible defaults on US debt and authorizations expiring that maybe some Congress people who are newly elected don't want to see renewed, even though they are, in fact, quite important. I mean, I think we saw one of these, I can't remember if it was five or 702, but we saw one of these um, one of these authorities come up for renewal a couple of years ago, and it went right down to the wire, but it was renewed in the end, you know?
2: Yes, and you know you got to assume that some of the oversight people, as you say, you know, do get good information and can make good choices. Uh, but it is very funny watching from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It must be super frustrating though when you're in the middle of a you know of an operation or some collection or whatever else under a particular authority, not knowing whether it's going to be there tomorrow.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, work, there's. I so. mean, it's like, let's see if this one comes down to the wire as well because yeah. I think there were a few borderline heart attacks last time. Yeah. So. Let's see. Oh, now uh, we've got some reporting here. Alexander Martin, for the record, has reported essentially what we said last week, which was based on, you know, just as I say, stuff I'd heard from friends, uh, which is that the Guardian attack, it was definitely ransomware and it is an ongoing disaster. They have pushed, like initially they pushed their return to the office date to January 23. Now they've pushed that back out to February. Uh, before staff can come back into the office. And they have emailed staff saying um, that some of their personal data was obtained in the leak. So, yeah, the the, the Guardian thing is as much of a <laughs> rolling shit show as we said it was last
2: week. Confirmed. Yeah. Yes, uh, described as, quote, complex and ongoing, end quote. Uh, and probably also very expensive. Whoever's rolling IR in there, I bet, is making fat bank. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, tough, tough time.
0: Tough times at The Guardian. Now, there's been some sort of data breach in Japan in the insurance industry, Adam, that looks like it's kind of global in scope. Can you walk us through this one?
2: Yeah, so the reporting talks about um, data for customers of insurers, uh, Aflac and Zurich, uh, and potentially others that involve uh, some, quote, subcontractor of a third-party vendor uh, and their file transfer server, which, of course, brings back a great many memories uh, from the last couple of years of file transfer servers <laughs> getting yes. popped. I wonder if this was an unpassed you know, It's possible. Probably. But who knows? Because, I mean, you know, a
0: lot of them that are, that, are, that are in the, like, non-English speaking markets, right, like they might not get hit immediately and now people are looking further along. I don't know. I mean, that's just pure conjecture, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it were.
2: Yeah, so both uh, both AFLAC and Zurich have said it was the same, you know, attributing it to a third-party service provider, uh, something like a 1.3 million people's worth of data. And this is like medical insurance, cancer insurance, uh, and all sorts of other things, name, age, gender, insurance numbers, premiums, plan information. Like, that's kind of data you probably don't want out there, but anyway, it's been well and truly nicked, uh, and the insurers are obviously in the process of contacting customers uh, and... You know, I'm telling them that they take privacy and security very seriously.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting that you've got this, you know, thing that pops off in Japan and then, you know, causing drama everywhere, right? It's not sort of what you normally expect, I guess, is what yes, I'm getting Yes,
2: yeah, I mean, it does indicate the kind of global nature of some of these systems.
0: Yeah. Uh, group IB has identified what it's calling a new APT group, Adam, uh, called Dark Pink and uh, CyberScoop has a write-up. Uh, AJ Vicens has the write-up for CyberScoop on this one. I mean, look, it just looks like a pretty typical sort of APT crew, but it's you know, I don't know. I feel like, do we need to like uh, break a bottle of champagne over a boat or something like that? Like, what's the what's the equivalent? What's the equivalent thing when you discover a
2: new crew? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, they seem to be targeting mostly stuff in Southeast Asia, um, Philippines, Malaysia, Cambodia, Indonesia, but also Bosnia and Herzegovina. So. <laughs>
0: Curious. Yeah. yeah, I heard that and Like when I was editing,
2: editing Risky Biz News and I heard Claire read that part of it. I was like, huh. <laughs> yeah. So we, we don't know who it could be. Uh, apparently the first known one they've seen was in Vietnam. But I mean, there's just lots of good hackers in, 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 with, you know, in Southeast Asia and with interests in Southeast Asia. So yeah, we don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, a new APT crew, probably not super big news these days. You know, everybody's got one or yeah. two or three or 10 or Know, have to see if they start ransomwareing people as well to make a few extra bucks.
0: Now we spoke about LastPass last week, Adam, and uh, Norton LifeLock has actually had to send like a breach notification to a whole bunch of people because there have been cred stuffing attacks of varying degrees of success against nearly a million of its of its password manager customers.
2: Yeah, well, that kind of, kind of makes sense, I guess. If you're going to have a you know online security product like that, then cred stuffing against it's probably going to get you something. Um, Norton. Which is LifeLock. funny because
0: like last week I was saying, look, the sort of person who's going to use a password manager is probably the sort of person who's going to select a
2: good password for it. But it turns out maybe not so much. Not so much with Norton, <laughs> Norton LifeLock customers, yeah. which, you know, I feel bad because, you know, Peter Norton, you know, I've got the Peter Norton pink book on the shelf, right? I mean, the, the name still carries some cachet, but, you know, semantic and Norton they've fallen so far, I mean, it's not even yeah. semantic anymore. Like right? it's a company called Gen Digital, which also owns like a vast and ABG and C Cleaner and you know a bunch of the other sort of you know spammy end of life, no use to anybody consumer security products that you get pushed on at you know retail stores. So yeah, yeah. I mean, in that respect, I guess people having bad passwords for their online password vault probably not that surprising.
0: Yeah, so there's a link to a write-up on that in uh, this week's uh, show notes. Now we're going to get into some bugs and exploitation thereof. And Cisco has released <laughs> details of some absolutely horror show critical bugs in some of their SMB routers. And I guess what makes this interesting is they're not patching them because these things are end of life, but they were selling these things in 2020, which just it boggles my mind.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's an entirely reasonable boggle in my opinion. Um, you know, if you're gonna sell them, then you should be required to provide support for at least some reasonable period of time. Like I don't know what consumer law is like in the rest of the world, but you know, here in New Zealand, if you were a end consumer, you know, you could reasonably expect to get updates for quite a reasonable period of time, and you could go get a refund if you didn't, so I don't know if it's similar elsewhere, but it seems very rude, especially when we're talking about like straight up remote code exec. Uh, onto your, you know, edge device. Pretty bad, pretty bad. Somehow they managed to weasel one of these bugs down to like CVSS rating of six. Yeah, which is like arbitrary remote command exec and it's somehow a six. I saw (laughs) that, I'm like, what? Yeah, there must be some access requirements or whatever. They got some good um,
0: lobbyists or some good blackmail material or something.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the other ones is a strong CVSS nine, auth bypass, code exec, not great.
0: Yeah, so No Biscuit Cisco. It's Mm, been a while since we've said that. They Mm. appear to have got maybe marginally better. I don't know. Um, But uh, yeah, (laughs) clown (laughs) show stuff. I mean, look- they're well, not
2: Fortinet bad, though.
0: Yes, well, actually, <laughs> nice segue, dude, because, uh, yeah, Fortinet's released a uh, post-mortem on one of its horror show bugs and has found that, yeah, like, oh, yeah, their report found a whole bunch of old customers got owned. Oops.
2: <laughs> again, <Basically>, shocking. Again, <laughs> uh, that, And this was, like, the December bug, right? There was another yeah. CVSS 9.8 in I Fortinet's. can't keep up,
0: man. There's so many. Yeah, in, like, there are all of this.
2: so many, That's and it's just, you know, Fortinet has become an internet kick-me sign. You know, if you yeah. see one, you're like,
0: lol, shell time, let's go. <laughs> So, yeah yeah or just write down that URL to the to the gateway and just wait for the next one to land and get away yeah, well, up and, you know, yeah exactly
2: much. right I mean if you you know if you're sitting on a you know a showdown style database of all of the machines on the internet then turning like here is a new Fortinet bug into here is a thousand new shells <laughs> pretty, pretty straightforward yeah yeah, mm. yeah.
0: and uh, I am including this one even though you say it's not relevant to 2023 there is a 9.8 severity CVSS in control web panel. And it's under act- active exploit, Adam. So there you go. Yeah, it's like, my like argument CPanel, was who, but different.
2: Yeah. yeah, my argument was like, who uses VPSs with web-based management portals anymore? But I guess there's probably a bunch of stuff that does. And you yep. get a bunch of
0: shells. And- the difference is now they're running it on top of Azure. Or, <laughs> you know? All <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: they're running CPanel on AWS. I guess that's yeah. the thing. Would they? I mean, I don't even... Anyway. My head, it hurts. <laughs> uh, it hurts. And what CISA has also added a uh, recent Microsoft bug to its um you know list of known exploitable stuff. Is this an yeah, interesting this, one?
2: Yeah, this was a, a you know pretty robust local privilege, which is always handy. Yeah, you know for bypassing controls and kicking out AV and EDR products and stuff. So yeah, clearly it's being actively exploited. If CISA added it to the list, so
0: yeah. And uh, finally, uh, some sh- sugar CRM. Um, has a bug in it and hundreds of those boxes getting popped. I think there was a patch out, but people were just a bit lazy with it. And now there is like mass exploitation happening.
2: Yeah. So this was, I mean, SugarCRM is an open source CRM platform and is pretty widely used uh, by people who want cheap uh, CRM products. The bug is a real clanger. Like it's just a straight up upload a file as like to the email attachment endpoint, and then it gets stored in the web root, and you can just call it an exec code. So pretty, pretty classic PHP web bug. Um, and, yeah, I'm not surprised there's mass exploitation of that.
0: Well, mate, that's actually it for the week's news. Thanks a lot for joining me to talk through it all. Uh, entertaining and enjoyable, as always, Adam. And uh, we'll do it all again next week.
2: Yeah, thanks, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau
0: with a check of the week's security news there. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now. And this week's show is brought to you by Material Security. And if you don't know what Material is... Uh, it's a product that essentially upgrades your cloud email and makes it enterprise-ready, right? So you can redact PII automatically uh, and other sensitive data from all of your users' inboxes. You can do analytics uh, on the corporate mail corpus. You can detect some insider threat activity. You can put MFA challenges on things that users want to do that are kind of risky, like retrieving um, old stuff from their mail archive and, and, and on and on and on. It's really cool stuff. Uh, and it turns out Snowflake... Uh, The vendor is a material security investor, and you can actually run material with Snowflake to handle the data warehousing components. So uh, Ryan Noon is the co-founder of Material Security, and he invited Snowflake's head of cybersecurity strategy, Omer Singer, uh, to join him in this sponsor interview, which, uh, yeah, I was very happy to accommodate because the chat is less about materials use of Snowflake and more about how we can use some of this big data stuff to solve some real problems, right? Uh, this big data stuff, it's, it's getting more and more useful to organizations that don't have gigantic teams full of data scientists, now, the way OMA sees it is you can stick all your data now into Snowflake and then just buy apps that can query, manipulate, and analyze that data. So having everything in one place, uh, yeah, it's got some real benefits and it's actually something that's achievable now. So I guess really what he's talking about is a disconnect uh, these days. You can have a, di- a kind of disconnect between the company that handles the data storage and big data stuff and the the apps that actually make use of that data. So, instead of sticking everything in Splunk and then analyzing it with Splunk, you can stick it all in Snowflake and use whatever you want to draw insights from that data set. Anyway, here's Ryan Noon to kick off this conversation by talking about the evolution of data warehousing. Here he is.
3: Yeah, I mean, just seeing this in context of like, you know, what we did at the the, the big tech companies and the big internet companies, I think is kind of instructive here, like my background is, you know, I, I started this company Material Security like uh, I guess how many years ago now? Six years ago, uh, but before that, I ran a bunch of you know things at Dropbox and infrastructure. One of which was the whole data warehouse that the entire company, you know, every event from every Dropbox client that was pinging on someone's phone, telling its battery you know level, it g- went into a gigantic Hadoop data warehouse, uh, you know, with twelve thousand machines in it, and we could run queries on everything, and it had the whole company there, including security data, anti-fraud, anti-abuse, people doing malware, you know, command and control on Dropbox. Like, this thing was this massive resource that the company got to benefit from. Uh, Nowadays, that entire 12,000 node a cluster is a Snowflake cluster. right, And it's, there's, we're not running any of that stuff anymore, but that same architecture where you have all of your stuff in one place, and then you can either build or deploy apps on top of it, like, it's so useful, because the way that data works is, You know, when you join across one silo to another, it's exponentially more valuable. Every new silo you've got, if you've got to like, you know, take an extract and then go and find the other person that has that data and beg them, like, are you going to be able to solve an incident quickly? Like, no, you're not. And so what's neat is that you can, you can do that now. And the really high quality data platforms are really quite good and they know how to talk to security teams. And they know how to foster an ecosystem of really great applications on top of it, whether it's, you know, Splunk frontends, there's a lot of really great kind of like SIM tools that are that are built on top of it now, or some of the more, you know, kind of like novel, you know, CorpSec data, you know, apps like Material, we're protecting Google and Microsoft Office environments. Nothing like us has ever existed before, as far as I know, and you. are another awesome game that you can play on the Xbox that you bought that is your Corpsec Data Warehouse, right? I mean, I, I've so, always
0: wondered why, like, we haven't done this kind of sooner. Like, it's always made sense as a uniform approach, just in certain things, right? Like, just with certain things. When I think about, like, logs... Right, like logging. I remember an interview I did with Anton Chevakin, like fifteen years ago. I remember talking to him when he was Captain, you know, Mister Mr. Logs, uh, and I interviewed him at a conference in Rotterdam, because the conference organizers were like, "You got to talk to this guy, Anton. He knows everything about logging," <laughs> and I, I did this interview with him. It was really interesting, and this is when, like, just the process of. You know aggregating logs, figuring out how to store them, draw insights from them and stuff like back then, very, very hard, this is a much easier approach, right? Like just say you've got all of your logs feeding into one place, like there's no reason you can't have ten different applications all touching those logs exactly. um, you know that 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 centralization of the data is, is is immensely powerful. So my question to you, Omar, is why has it taken this long? for this type of approach to emerge. I mean, I'm guessing it's just like stuff like Splunk incumbency and things like that, but I'm curious to know what you think.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. And, uh, you know, you you mentioned Anton, great guy. He and I had some back and forth kind of uh, on Twitter and Medium kind of writing and responding to each other because he did have this post that was very kind of well-known, well-cited called, Why Your Security Data Lake Project Will Fail and he really laid it out that's a very out.
0: anton like, way to <laughs> right like couch it, things, yeah. you, here's why mm-hmm. you're
1: going to fail and here's why and and at the time when it was hadoop that was the big data approach it really was too much for the security team i think security is always trying to scramble to keep up with the bad guys and also to try to stand up this this hadoop thing that they needed to kind of care and feed for become experts around like it just didn't Right, just didn't work, and it was very kind of like a science project. Uh, what's changed is that all that's now been democratized. So today, you can go and with a kind of a free sign up, right? And and Snowflake is one example, but but this is a whole kind of industry now around cloud data platforms. You can get uh, a cloud data platform that is as big and scalable as what you know Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, you name it, are are using, and and that's that's a big that's a big shift. And what also happened is that it can support the kinds of data that you used to need a NoSQL search engine kind of thing to, to deal with. And so we had this kind of hiatus, I think, from data analytics, where we went down the road of search and NoSQL. And now we're kind of getting back on track because of the changes in the technology around cloud data platforms, uh, where, where security can rediscover kind of the opportunity in analytics. And if you look at Anton's uh, recent article, uh, he actually did kind of say, Well, you know what? It just might succeed, which was great to see.
0: I think I see where both of you are coming from, right? Which is that it used to be kind of too hard, too fiddly, required too much specialist knowledge. Whereas now, you know, it's got to the point where you can stand this stuff up without having a team of people you're paying 400K a year to to, <laughs> to maintain it, right? Ryan, you got I would, something to I, add there? I
3: would lo- yeah, I would love to dig into this question. It's like, a, it's actually fascinating to me. I'm like a computer systems guy, you know, originally. Uh, and like, there's probably like two big forces that I think are behind the why now. The first is like a paper that comes out of Google, right, called Dremel. Uh, you know that, and and this is like what 2010, I think the Dremel paper comes out. I forget. But basically, what they did was, and these are the people that invented, you know, MapReduce, right, which is what Hadoop was. They invented GFS, which is what HDFS was, right. These are the the big data people. Basically, you know, gave up on a lot of that approach because they figured out how to run like high quality SQL data warehouse queries on like nested, like highly complex nested data, uh, you know, very, very, very efficiently. And that means that like, you know, that's a lot of this stuff is possible. If you look at how Splunk works, right? It's a miracle uh, how it works. It does all of this really fancy pre-aggregation that doesn't seem so miraculous when you get the bill. Computer science, we have this thing called the time-space trade-off, which is you can either use the CPU or you can use memory or a disk right? Like you got, you pay now or pay later. And the whole idea behind something like Splunk or elastic is like, I'm going to index up front, So my queries are fast. The neat thing about columnar stores like Dremel and snowflake is downstream of that, right? Like there's, they're, they're all kind of like uh, descendants of this one, like really, really, really smart system. in a lot of ways snowflake brings a lot more to the table, I would say, you know, as a platform, but like the point is like, you can actually run these queries. And as a result, are much more efficient even the storage if i'm going to take a piece of logs and i'm going to like chop it up into a bunch of pieces so that i can it's some like palo alto firewall log that's like basically free text crap and i need to chop it up into a lot of little pieces so i could aggregate and filter on it that means the storage blows up and if you've got like a hundred gigabytes of these things now you actually have like 800 gigabytes of these things right whereas when you do it the other way and you store it as like these compressed columns it's actually less than 100 gigabytes and you can scan just the columns you want. So it's really neat. At the same time, in security, the data's gotten better. You might not think it, but this like centralization towards like, you're probably using CrowdStrike, you're probably using Okta. Like it's meant that the the schemas, the actual data is better than it used to be. It's not as all pieces of shit, right?
0: Yeah. And everyone's kind of moving towards some commonly understood meanings of like, what does a login event, look like when it succeeds you know like the fact that we can all kind of agree what that event log should look like is is amazing
1: totally and a lot of that was why in the past you needed these really huge connector libraries because you had you know such a diverse uh security data and that that has been changing but i do think we need to acknowledge that it's not just a tech thing right because okay so so we have the tech but Probably you have some listeners who are longtime security practitioners, and they're hearing this talk about commoner storage and SQL, and and it's making them nervous. And they're saying, and they're asking themselves, you know, is this something that I can even take on? Is this going to be the right tool for the job? And that's where I think we are making progress in getting security practitioners comfortable with this idea that security is. Not actually a snowflake, right? Pardon the pun, but actually this is a data analytic problem just like marketing has, just like finance has. And so like don't be shy in, in learning the the, the, the language and the approaches that have been successful in getting insights from data in those areas of the of okay the... but
0: say i'm like yeah. an ndr or ir software maker right i want to plug in and 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 mine a uh, a whole bunch of data stored in snowflake uh for insight like how does this work is it like just i go through an api to get access to that data warehouse is that is that basically how it goes
3: yeah it's super easy like you could just basically sign in and then you're talking to a SQL warehouse it's it's the same, yeah. you know, basic thing that you had like in a client server app like 20 years ago. It's just amazing, <laughs> you know, uh, and, it, and it's like the applications matter, you know, like the infrastructure is cool, but like your listeners care about applications. And what Omar's saying is the applications have gotten substantially
1: better and it's a lot easier to do this stuff. T- totally. And and it's it's really interesting to see what's happening now that this has be, been really kind of going mainstream over the last, I don't know, year or so. Now you're seeing the new, new generation of cybersecurity companies. Many of these are still in stealth. They're actually building the solution with the assumption in place that the, that their customers have a lot of this data ready to be mined and they're just going to plug in without even being the ones that collect it. They plug into where it's already waiting for them in that data platform, and they're going to have these very niche kind of very specific but a very uh, hard-hitting insights around, these are the users that are over-provisioned, or here's lateral movement in your cloud environment that today's security teams just, just don't get from their vendors, uh, insights that, that go that deep.
0: Yeah, I mean I I find it really interesting when you see that there's been this class of security products pop up in the last few years where all they do is fiddle with APIs. You know what I mean? Like and you're kind of one of them, right? Like, you know, you I mean the difference is though, you store a lot of email data, but really the core value there is in manipulating APIs. And you've got the same thing for some of these cloud-based security products, where essentially what they do is you know, funny stuff with APIs uh, to to give you some sort of uh, either insight, you know, visibility or control, right? So that's the new thing, and it makes sense that plugging into data that's been you know collected and just manipulating that, uh, or trying to draw insights from that, uh, you but, know, that that's that seems a logical place
1: for things to go. Yeah, but Ryan, but talk about the automation because what I what I'm excited about when I see how material kind of can take this and things we've already done, but also where you're going with it is when you have this very extensive visibility, how you can do a lot more automation. That's going to reduce risk for your customers, right? Using that data. Yeah. I mean, there's doing things
3: and there's knowing things and security products that only know things and don't do things suck. Security products that only do things and don't know things suck. So like you need both. Like we started with just all the API fiddling as you so charitably called it. Uh, <laughs> but like w- what we had to show people was where and how they needed it and to go bigger and to, to like actually action- when we roll out material, the first thing that we roll out is the like posture management and the data platform stuff. and people are just like, you're showing me things that I could not see before because I, I don't have enough money to put all this stuff in my Splunk and it would die if I tried to run that query. And like, that is the foundation. That is how we show like value in the second meeting of our evaluations, being like, hip hey, yep, yeah, here's all the people that are forward and stuff to personal accounts. You didn't put that in Splunk, did you? You know,
0: like. Arma Singer, Ryan Noon, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Uh, it's great to have you both on the show and we'll chat to you again soon. Thank you,
3: Peter. Always a pleasure.
0: That was Ryan Noon from Material Security and Omar Singer there from Snowflake. Big thanks to both of them for that. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Seriously Risky Business with Tom Uren in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.